Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Peter Laws. Welcome to Frightful. Before we start on tonight's really quite disturbing and uh, crazy episode, um, just let me remind you that if you'd like to get ad-free versions of uh, both Frightful and Our Curious Past, my other show, then check out patreon.com forward slash Peter Laws. There you can get access to a lot of audio extras and exclusive things. And also uh, you can connect with me through Zoom socials and uh, other various fun hangouts. And so if you'd like to check that out, then go to patreon.com forward slash Peter Laws. Thanks very much. Have you ever seen a stranger's face that made you shiver? Perhaps you're walking on the street or you stumble across a photograph and there's just something about them, about their eyes, their demeanour that unsettles you. I had that experience a while ago. I was looking for something on the internet, doing one of those deep dives for a different podcast episode and... I just came across a photograph of a woman and I instantly stopped scrolling because I felt a coldness when I looked at her, even though she was quite beautiful. I clicked on the picture and there, gazing from my computer screen, was a woman who was perhaps in her thirties, with brown hair parted in the middle and pinned up at the back. She was sort of hunched over, looking to the left. And my first thought was an odd one. I thought... If I was to meet this woman in real life, I think I wouldn't trust her. In fact, I'd be quite frightened of her. Fascinated and drawn, perhaps, but afraid somehow. It was weird. Was it just the way the photograph was composed, or was I picking up some sort of latent supernatural echo of who she actually was? I don't know. All I can say is, I was attracted and then disturbed enough to start searching the internet for more information on her and what I discovered was really really quite ghastly I guess my instincts were correct after all because it wasn't long before I found that she was described as the most evil woman in Australia the majority of cult leaders are male but this woman is one of the few female ones her name was Anne Hamilton Byrne and she was the leader of a horrific doomsday cult in Australia. She believed she was Jesus Christ, which might sound laughable if it wasn't for the fact that she amassed a horde of devoted followers who fully believed that this was exactly who Anne was. And these followers were not dim-witted people. They were often professional, highly qualified men and women who would give themselves over to Anne and do horrendous acts in worship to her. They saw something in this lady which transfixed them, perhaps in the same way I was transfixed when I scrolled past her face and stopped everything to look. And while under her spell, in Anne's cult, they systematically kidnapped children in a twisted, isolated commune called the family. They would follow a brutal regime of worship and devotion to their new mother. And when I dug a little deeper to find pictures of these children, it was like something out of a horror movie. 
These snatched kids were brought into the family and made to dress exactly how Anne wanted them to, in weird matching tracksuits. And the most striking of all in the photographs, that they were all forced to dye their hair bleach blonde in similar bobbed cuts. So that any picture of these children looks like something out of things like Village of the Damned or the Midwich Cuckoos. Well... I'm Peter Laws, and tonight on Frightful, we explore the chilling and disturbing and yet true life story of Anne Hamilton Byrne. She was born in the city of Sale, in the Australian state of Victoria, but Anne Hamilton Byrne was not on her birth certificate. She was actually born Evelyn Grace Victoria Edwards in December 1921, and her early years were troubled and unstable. The family were poverty-stricken, and her dad, Ralph, would often leave the family for extended periods. But this wasn't for the typical reasons of an absentee father. You see, Ralph struggled to cope with his wife, Anne's mother. She was called Florence, and she was convinced that she was a spirit medium, with the ability to talk to the dead. Indeed, when she spoke to the departed spirits, they really did seem to talk back to her. Only later she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. The ghosts lived in her head. Yet they still made her do terrible things, like once when Florence went out into a public space and took a match or a lighter and she set fire to her own hair as horrified people looked on. Florence spent about half of her life in the care of Ararat Mental Asylum. Since her mother was so unstable and her dad often absent, Anne, then known as Evelyn, ended up being raised at Old Brighton Orphanage. A newspaper report said that she was given the nickname Puddy, which was because of her being apparently overweight. This concern about body shape would come back in a terrible way later when she developed her cult. Anne's early upbringing was marked by themes of instability in the family, lack of money, being abandoned by parents, but also she had been introduced to strange supernatural themes from her mum with her claims of spiritualism and talking to the dead. And all of these elements would gradually mix together to form the cocktail of Anne's personality. And as she grew up, she decided she would no longer be like her parents. She would use the deep wounds of her childhood to fuel a life that would be the opposite of her parents. Anne would end up becoming a glamorous, jet-setting millionaire with a large and committed family. But these seemingly positive things would be attained and maintained in deeply dysfunctional ways. In other words, the wounds of Anne's childhood would propel her to deeply wound others in return, especially children. We don't know much about Anne's teenage years, but we do know that in 1941 she turned 20, and she changed her name from Evelyn to Anne, and she got married to a 24-year-old called Don Harris, and over the years they had a child together called Judith. But Anne wanted a bigger family. She especially wanted a baby boy. So the couple applied to adopt a baby boy from the children's charity Bernardo's Homes, but then tragedy struck. The year was 1955. And some sources say that Don Harris was literally driving to the children's home to pick up their new adopted son when Don's car lost control and he crashed. He was killed in the wreck. This 
was traumatic enough for Anne, but it also meant that the adoption of the little boy was instantly withdrawn. The children's home didn't think it was appropriate for this child to be raised by a single mother. And so Anne was left without her husband and without the little boy she longed for, and her hopes of a large family were lost, but only for the time being. Over the next few years, she started to find another sense of purpose in life. She began to teach yoga in Melbourne, Australia, which she saw as much more than just exercise. Indeed, by the early 1960s, Anne was well-versed in alternative spiritualities. She claims to have learned under some of the most prominent Indian gurus and yogis from the time, though it's been later suggested that she fabricated some of these claims. She set up her own yoga studio where the clients were mostly well-to-do middle-aged women. And they seemed very open-minded toward Anne, even when she started offering not only yoga, but more exotic spiritual teachings. She would have her clients consult astrologers, for example, which was quite eclectic and new in Australia in the 1950s. But she would also weave in elements of the occult and the supernatural. She encouraged her clients to use Ouija boards, for example. By the early 1960s, her approach really appealed to a new generation of Australians who were seeking spiritual experience beyond the walls of organized religion. There was so much interest in Anne's spiritual teaching by this point that she started to take on the role of a popular female guru, not only to these women who came to her classes, but also to their husbands, These men were certainly drawn in by her teaching, but also they were transfixed by the power of her personality and her beauty. You see, Anne was a striking woman. Indeed, she looked quite a bit younger than her age. The reason for that is that she had various facelifts throughout her life. It's why when you see her photographs across the years, you'll watch her hairline move further and further back from her forehead. It's why she would eventually start wearing lush blonde wigs that gave her an air of youthfulness and vitality. There would be more of this vanity to come. But for now, with a growing reputation and an eager crop of followers, it's perhaps unsurprising to find that she soon developed what became the potential of a cult. And this cult, later to be known as the Family, would find its genesis in a strange incident from 1962. Raynor Carey Johnson was the master of Queen's College at the University of Melbourne. He was an Englishman who used to work in physics, but by the time he got to Australia, he was much more interested in the occult and supernatural phenomenon. He was well known for his books on the paranormal. Well, one day, Anne decided that she wanted to meet Raynor Johnson, so she just turned up on his doorstep. Come on in. It was the 22nd of December, 1962, and she walked into his office and shared about her life, and the professor was just enchanted by her. He was taken in by her demeanor, her looks, but also what she was saying. You see, in the office that day, Anne began to tell him that she had the power of prediction. She could tell the future. And she told Johnson that, among other things, his wife, Mary, would soon become very ill. Mm-hmm. Raynor was intrigued by this strange woman and her prophecies, and he pondered what she'd said when he and his wife flew out to Calcutta soon after this incident. 
They went there for a holiday. And so imagine the shiver he must have felt when his wife, while out in Calcutta, started to complain of feeling very unwell indeed. So ill, in fact, that they had to cut the holiday short. Raynor and Mary flew back to Australia and discussed this remarkable prediction from this strange and enigmatic lady. They were convinced Anne Hamilton Byrne was special, anointed with a gift. And so when they landed, they decided they would commit their allegiance to Anne. It was 1963. And they pledged their allegiance to Anne with a weird ritual. Raynor and his wife, also alongside their daughter called Maureen, gathered together. And they also brought four other people who were sure that Anne was a woman to be followed and obeyed. And the seven of them gathered to take hallucinogenic mushrooms together. And they began this ritual of pledging their lives to Anne. And the mushrooms began a trip that would blow their minds. Because by the end of it, not only did they see Anne as a powerful spiritual guru, she was way more than that. She was, they decided, Jesus Christ himself come to the earth in female form. And this is where it started. The family. Though at the beginning the cult was called the Great White Brotherhood of initiates and masters. From then on, the Great White Brotherhood began spreading the word about this remarkable divine woman, Anne Hamilton, and more people were added to the group, including a prominent psychiatrist called Dr. Lance Howard Whitaker, who was known for using LSD on his patients and also on himself. But then, a new woman joined the cult, and Anne discovered with this new addition she was seeing a frightening new avenue of power opening up. You see, Joy Villamek, this new devotee of Anne's, also happened to be the owner of a private psychiatric hospital. And when Joy died, Anne Hamilton became the joint trustee and executor of the private clinic called New Haven. This meant that Anne's power and influence was growing exponentially. And this, I think, is where the story starts getting particularly scary. You see, now Anne not only had a clinic, but she also had fully qualified psychiatrists and some doctors and nurses as part of her cult. These influential professionals believed she was Jesus Christ. And Anne realized that having such loyal followers with those occupations meant that she now had the power to threaten people with incarceration in the clinic she now owned. It only took the signature of two psychiatrists for a person to be sectioned and locked away in Australia at the time. And Anne would use or abuse this power with a horrendous disregard for others. Like when she met this man called Bill Byrne in 1968, Anne decided that she wanted Bill as her husband. Only problem was, Bill was already married to another woman at the time called Mary Byrne. Now, obviously, Mary was not just going to give Bill up to some strange woman, however intimidating. And so Anne realized she could use her followers to get what she wanted. She instructed some of her psychiatrist followers to have poor Mary Byrne committed to Anne's clinic. And while she was there, she was forced to undergo shocking and degrading psychiatric treatments. Treatments that she completely did not need. Mary Byrne was perfectly healthy in her mind, and yet Anne had locked her away as a madwoman 
just so she could have Mary's husband for herself. It's like something out of a gothic novel, and yet it happened. When you think about it, it's absolutely disgusting and terrifying. Mary shivering at night as a prisoner in some sort of asylum, knowing her husband has allowed this to happen. And indeed, Bill Byrne would remain married to Anne for the rest of his life. Both of them knowing full well what they had done to Mary. It's just horrible. Some sources have shared other examples of how Anne, now called Anne Hamilton Byrne, had used the cult to abuse the medical system to punish people. Like, for example, a woman member whose husband was forced to endure a frontal lobe lobotomy at Anne's request so that his personality was forever altered. This is shockingly dark work that Anne was involved in. The cult were ready to do whatever Anne wanted because they were afraid of being endlessly reincarnated due to bad karma. That's what she taught them. And she told them the only way that they could pay for their karmic debt was through her power. Like Jesus would pay for the sins of Christians, she was now the Jesus for them to pay for their bad karma. And so she kept on doing her will. And some would even die for her. The group got so big that they bought various properties, including a rural retreat called Sanakanitan Lodge. This was a ritualistic center where the group would take LSD and listen to Anne's sermons, which she would deliver in her low Australian voice. And about 150 to 200 people would attend these services, sometimes several times a week. It's said that they would lower the light in the room and then light incense sticks. And they would play Handel's Lago, which is what we're hearing right now. And in she would walk, wearing a robe, the supposedly divine, yet clearly deadly Anne Hamilton Byrne. And her followers would often say that whenever she walked into a room, she would be surrounded by a mysterious blue light, an effect of the hallucinogens, I guess. And she'd sit on her chair, which looked more like a throne, while her followers knelt at her feet in adoration. And she would teach them telling them that she was their only hope and that she demanded absolute loyalty. She'd even rearrange marital couples so that one husband would suddenly be given a new wife for a while. Some people apparently quite liked that system. By the early 1970s, members were giving the majority of their decent incomes to Anne, which helps explain why she became worth about $50 million by the 1980s. But as the time went on, her teaching turned darker and more apocalyptic. She said that a catastrophic event was coming. Could be a world war or an environmental disaster. But she would sit on her throne in her blue glow, telling her followers that she knew for certain that most of the entire human race would soon die in this global event. Which is when she started to share her plan for the group's survival. It was her role, she told them to gather future leaders that would take charge in this post-apocalyptic world. Which is when she started to give out the instructions. They would build a family for the future. And that meant they needed one thing. Children. We all know that money can't buy happiness, but you know what comes pretty close? Not worrying about your money. That's where Chime can put a smile on your face. You see, Chime were just named the number one most loved banking app. So why are people so happy about Chime? 
Well, how about the fact that you can get payday up to two days early and get an overdraft of up to $200 without a fee? That's a bit of financial peace of mind you can tuck away in your wallet. There are no annual fees and don't be expecting any big security deposits or even credit checks either. They're not needed with Chime. See for yourself why Chime is so loved at Chime.com forward slash Frightful. That's Chime.com forward slash Frightful. Chime is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bank Corp Bank or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Early access to direct deposit funds depends on payer. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. See chime.com forward slash spot me. Chime was the 2021 number one most downloaded banking app in the US, according to Aptopia. Now, you might have images come to mind of Anne and her followers rolling through the suburbs of Australia in vans and snatching kids from the street. But she and her followers were wiser than that. They did not want to be caught, and so they found a more insidious way of stealing children. And they did it legally. This might sound quite bizarre, but remember how powerful some of her followers were and how rich this cult had become. And so to bring the children in... The cult focused their attention on two main areas. Firstly, they turned to the clinic. If any psychiatric patient became pregnant and gave birth to a baby, the doctors and nurses under Anne's influence would make sure that this child would be given to a good home, away from the troubled mother. Only that home would be with Anne and the family. They also focused on mothers who had become pregnant out of wedlock. Even by the late 60s and early 70s, this was still seen as a shameful condition to be in, in certain parts of Australia. So many of these women were not allowed to have their babies at home, with family and friends on hand to help. Instead, these unwed mothers were forced to move away from their community to give birth at a distance. And this meant that the corrupt doctors and nurses could also arrange for these children to be legally adopted by Anne and the family, Anne started procuring children this way in 1969, and she would bring 14 children into the cult through these methods. Along with 14 kids who already belonged to the cult members, the family would end up with 28 children. Although those numbers may vary because sometimes foster kids and other children would come through the doors of the family. But even stranger, these core group of children were told that Anne and Bill were their biological parents. Even though some of the kids had their actual parents living there alongside them in the cult, they were no longer the children of those people. They were presented as merely aunts and uncles. Come to mommy, children. They belonged to Mother Anne and Father Bill instead. Or as they were instructed to call them, Mummy and Daddy. Which is insane. Because by the 70s and 80s, Anne was already way too old for this to be possible. And in fact, she'd even had a hysterectomy in the mid-1970s. But she kept up this bizarre pretense to the children and to the group by wearing maternity clothes as if she was pregnant, with whichever child would next be unethically taken from the mother on the outside and brought in. Children, come inside. And if the kids ever asked their new mummy how old she was, Anne would simply smile at them and say, I'm 21. 
You know mummy loves you, don't you? Life for the kids at this retreat centre was awful. And remember, most of the children had their hair dyed identically blonde and forced to wear the same tracksuits for uniformity. But their daytime activities were similarly regimental. They followed a strict regime every single day of the year where they had to make their beds at 6am. It was 5am during the summer. They would then have an hour of hatha yoga. Then 15 minutes of listening to Anne's weird sermons on tape. Then 15 minutes of chanting mantras. Then 15 minutes of meditation. And then 15 minutes to prepare the schoolroom. Then they would finally get to eat breakfast. It would be fruit. Then they'd have three hours of schoolwork with only a short break. Then another hour of meditation. Sometimes they were allowed to play a game, but this game was called Spaceball, which was a game that Anne invented for them, where they'd basically stand in a circle and pass a ball to one another in certain patterns. She insisted that this game was good for their brains, but they found it mind-numbingly boring. Such was her narcissism and desire for total control and influence, she even demanded they play her games. For lunch, they ate steamed vegetables and fruit. Then another three and a half hours of school lessons until 5 to 9 p.m. when they had to have meditation, have another vegetarian meal and read spiritual books before they did homework and went to bed. They did this brutal timetable every day for 365 days a year. And that's not even to mention the starvation and the severe beatings that regularly happened all under Anne's instruction. Get them! And these harsh punishments were carried out, however, by the aunties, some of which were the actual parents of these children, remember? So you can see the frightening disconnect going on in the minds of these people. When a child was beaten like this, the other children were forced to watch. Anyone who dared look away was called up to be beaten as well. There were times when the kids were beaten almost every day, particularly during the years of 1976 to 1980, when Bill and Anne were out of the country quite a lot. The aunties, who were left to their own devices, ramped up the beatings and it was relentless. A wooden meter ruler was often used for this. Shut up! A chilling example of the terror these children were living in was with a young boy called David. He was terrified of the aunties and the beatings they would give. And one night he was so stressed about it all, he wet the bed. And the next morning, he suddenly heard one of the aunties shouting his name. And the other children said that David simply stood upright, rooted to the spot in terror, and instantly lost control of his bowels. The other kids were horrified and knew that terrible trouble was coming for him when they found out. And sure enough, one of the aunties called Trish discovered what had happened and dragged him upstairs for a particularly nasty beating. The kids were punished for such trivial things like not putting their shoes on fast enough or for using forbidden words like the word hate. Or if they looked at one of the aunties in a way that they found dumb or insolent. One girl, Megan Dawes, once missed meals for the whole day. Why? Because she was caught wearing odd socks. The children were also punished for rocking. This was a way they had learned to soothe themselves to sleep at night. They would sit in the bed and rock themselves backwards and forwards. But if the aunties ever caught them soothing themselves in this way, they were belted. Because for some twisted reason, the adults in that group decided that 
this rocking back and two was some sort of sexual act. And sometimes during these beatings, the children would call out to Anne and Bill, saying, Mummy, Daddy, come and stop this, as if they might think that Anne was on their side when this was all her fault. Anne and Bill were often out of the country, but Anne would call on the phone to talk to the children. And the children were instructed to always say the same thing on the phone. They would say, Hello, Mummy. Hello, Daddy. And they would chat for a while, and then before passing the phone on, they were instructed to always say these three words. I love you. When annual inspections came round from the education board, they were able to coach the children to make it look like this was a healthy environment, and they somehow passed. But it was not healthy at all. Sometimes, if Anne was in an angry mood, she would storm into the room where the children were and slam a carving knife down on the bench in front of them while they ate. She would scream at them that the next person to step out of line or be bad-mannered or even move would have their, quote, bum cut off. The children would later say that this threat would fill the kids with terror because they genuinely believed that Anne would take that carving knife and do exactly that if provoked. It kept them scared, and when they were scared, they stayed under control. The children would also later tell how Anne hated bright lights, probably for vanity's sake. It meant then that the overhead lights in the complex were only ever allowed to be nothing more than 20 watts and the windows all had heavy curtains on them so the rooms they lived in were dingy and dark and apparently stank of cats once a week the children were weighed and the results were put into a book which would then be passed to Anne for inspection and Anne who remember had been bullied at school for her weight was disgusted and horrified by the simple concept. She was obsessed with body weight and body shape, and she would rail against the children, especially the girls, for gaining weight, and their rations would be cut by half, even though it was often malnutrition that was causing their stomachs to distend and stick out. One poor little girl called Cassandra was particularly targeted by Anne, because Anne decided that Cassandra was just too overweight because her belly was starting to stick out but also because Cassandra just happened to have a rounder face. And so Cassandra had her food portions cut drastically, and two of the aunts, Auntie Wynne and Auntie Liz, would weigh her every morning, and it said they would gloat over the result and force Cassandra to eat even less and less, despite her having a stick-like body. The children begged the aunties and Anne, to share their food with Cassandra, but Anne insisted that Cassandra must never be allowed to weigh more than three stone until she reached the height of four foot or more. Unsurprisingly, Cassandra had barely any energy and she had to crawl around the house and sometimes couldn't move and all while the aunties were screaming at her because they believed that this was all just an act to get sympathy. One of the children was called Sarah. She will be very significant in this case. But during the Cassandra incident, Sarah had a look at one of the biology books that was available to read in the complex, and she spoke to Anne about this and said that malnutrition can cause children's stomachs to expand, and she was saying this must be what's happening to Cassandra. But Anne refused to listen, and she said, quote, No, Cassandra is just fat. She's always been fat. And Anne said, 
If anybody ever tries to stop Cassandra's horrific eating regime, they would be, quote, following her coffin to the grave. Some of the children were so worried about Cassandra that they gave her food anyway, risking their own lives to help their sister. Cassandra started to experience fits, and Anne insisted that this was the children's fault, because she said the kids used to lock Cassandra in the cupboard when she was really little, and that somehow this had caused her fits now. Of course, Anne was somehow ignoring the fact that she was the one who told the kids that if Cassandra was ever crying continuously, they had to lock her up in the cupboard until she stopped. Anne would even change the names of the children. And about seven of them were given the derivatives of the name Anne, such was her narcissism. She changed their birth dates too, not just the children, but the sect members, just to keep things confusing. But then... That one child I mentioned earlier, Sarah, who challenged Anne, would change the course of the family's history forever. Sarah Hamilton Byrne was one of the children in the family, but she was different. She was rebellious and argumentative. She would even sometimes lead the children on nighttime raids to steal food from neighboring houses. And she kept being punished constantly for it. And eventually Anne and the family became so exasperated with Sarah that they did something unexpected. They ejected her from the family. And this would be the turning point of everything. When Sarah was on the outside, she told Victoria Police what was happening in the family. And a raid followed on the 14th of August, 1987. And during this raid, which totally devastated the plans of Anne and her cronies, the children were taken away from this sect and put into protective custody. Sarah went on to write a memoir of her time in the cult called Unseen, Unheard, Unknown, which was actually the mission statement of the family. Sarah was somehow able to forgive Anne for what she did, which can sound incomprehensible, but there's a complicated relationship between cult members and their leaders, particularly in these sorts of cases when the the prisoners are so young. Indeed, one of the children from the family grew up and got married after the family was disbanded, and she invited both Bill and Anne to the wedding. Well, you would think that Bill Byrne and Anne Hamilton Byrne would have quickly been arrested for child cruelty, but building a case against them proved to be really difficult. For example, the kids claimed to have had LSD regularly forced on them, but it was no longer in their system, so it couldn't be proved. Neither could the starvation regime either. And so a long investigation was launched, an expensive one called Operation Forest, and it did eventually lead to the arrest of Anne and Bill in 1993 but the only charge they could really make stick was conspiracy to defraud and perjury, which wound up as a mere $5,000 fine each. Bill Hamilton Byrne died in 2001, and Anne wound up in a care home where she had dementia in 2004. Though some members claim that she has not got dementia, but that she was somehow living in the Christ consciousness. The sect she founded still operates today, though mostly through an animal charity called Life for All Creatures Limited. How ironic. 
An eerie detail that was shared in an academic journal about this case is that it is said that in Anne's later years she could not communicate, and so nobody really knew if she ever showed remorse for her actions, or indeed if she even remembered them. But visitors said that when they went to see her in the care home, she would be sitting there embracing a baby doll, as if her desire for keeping children close had never really gone away. She died on Thursday the 13th of June 2019 at the age of 98, leaving behind a steady trail of broken and devastated lives. Sarah Byrne, the one who had first involved the police and wrote the memoir, eventually went on to study medicine and became a qualified doctor. But the traumas of her life in the family caught up with her. She attempted suicide, an attempt through which she lost her leg. And then eventually she died in 2016 of heart failure, which means Anne Hamilton Byrne outlived her. You know, Sarah was not the only member of the family who attempted suicide. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the group still suffer the scars of what happened, even today. And so we're left with this complicated and chilling story of a woman who had been wounded herself as a child and yet found herself wounding others in return. But she did so in an epic way because there was something about her that drew people in. Even as I was drawn to the picture of her who looked fascinating and frightening at the same time, Anne Hamilton Byrne had this, well, you might call it a gift if it was used in a positive way of charisma, but she used it to end up becoming known as the most evil woman in Australia. We leave this case with some words from Carol Cusack, who wrote the paper Anne Hamilton Byrne and the Family in July 2020 for the University of Sydney, and she said, Anne's personal psychopathology, her avowed love of children, remains a unique factor in the family, and it is arguable that the flaxen-haired children of the family are both its most recognisable image and the single phenomenon that led to Anne being regarded as Australia's most evil cult leader. Not only was she a woman, but she was a woman whose warped image of maternity led her to violate all cherished norms about mothers, that they are loving and caring, selfless and protective. Anne was none of these things. But I wonder if perhaps she thought she was, all the way to the very end, in that care home, as she sat in that chair, clinging on to that doll, still thinking, perhaps, I am different to my mum. I am a good mother. I'm Peter Laws, and you've been listening to Frightful, and the case of Anne Hamilton Byrne the most evil woman in Australia.